Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Linda Bohannon. I'm the president of the Cancer Support Community, sitting in today for your regular host, Kim Tebaldo. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been relentless allies for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals and families manage the realities of cancer and to get back to their normal whether accessing our free services in person at one of our 175 locations, online, or our toll-free helpline, we are um, really making available to you a team of licensed mental health professionals, patient navigators, financial counselors, genetic counselors, and pediatric support, and more. So we hope that you'll take advantage of some of the resources that we'll give you at the end of the show. Today's episode is part of a special series that we're having called Looking at Leukemias. And today we're going to focus on a a type of leukemia that that touches me pretty closely because my father actually had acute myeloid leukemia, also called AML for short. So we'll refer to it throughout the rest of the show as AML, but it stands for acute myeloid leukemia. And AML is a blood cancer that for a very, very long time had been treated the same way. And we've had a number of breakthroughs, both in the ways in which it's diagnosed, it's profiled, it's treated. And, you know, those are the things that I'm really eager to speak uh, about today with our guest. Our guest today is Dr. Thomas LeBlanc, and I would just love to tell you a little bit about him before we get started. Dr. LeBlanc is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Hematologic Malignancies and Cellular Therapy at Duke University School of Medicine and the director of the Cancer Patient Experience Research Program also in the Duke Cancer Institute. He is board certified in internal medicine, medical oncology, and hospice and palliative medicine. His practice focuses on the care of patients with blood cancer. Dr. LeBlanc's program of research focuses on palliative care and patient experience issues in hematology. And Dr. LeBlanc, we should probably make sure that we do touch on palliative care and the difference between palliative care and and hospice care, which is another completely robust topic that I think is so important. So welcome to the show today, Dr. LeBlanc. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's so good to have you back. This isn't the first time you've been on the show. We'd love to have you on the show. Yes, I'm happy to be back. So let's get started with, I'm going to flip order some things. So a lot of times I'll ask our guests to reflect on the future of cancer, sort of towards the end of our episode. But I think with what's happened with AML, and my dad's diagnosis was in 2016, so much has changed since he was diagnosed. And um, I would love for you to talk about sort of the breakthroughs that have um, that have happened over the last even two or three years. Yes, it is a really exciting time in AML management, and particularly exciting for our patients and families who are facing this disease. So we now do very, very personalized assessment of people's leukemias and then uh, more directed therapies on the basis of what we find about the person's leukemias. And I'm being a little bit 
vague on purpose because it gets very technical um, pretty quickly, and I don't want to get too much into all the jargon. But basically what we're doing now is taking samples of each individual person's leukemia and profiling the actual genetic changes that led to the leukemia happening or that's driving its growth. And we are sometimes able to apply treatments that target those specific changes in a very personalized kind of way for that particular patient and their uh, leukemia from that molecular profiling that we're doing. So it's just a completely different paradigm for treating this disease. And it's based on... Um, advances with eight new drugs being approved by the FDA in 2017 and 18, and also advances in uh, what we call next-generation sequencing or, or kind of molecular profiling tests where we can look for actual mutations in the DNA. And we've done a number of shows on personalized medicine and have a, frankly speaking, educational series on personalized medicine. So I'll just mention that to our listeners because a lot of what you're talking about is is personalized medicine. And I I remember right as my dad was diagnosed that there was an article that came out. It was either in the New England Journal of Medicine or um, the Journal of the American Medical Association that that there was a discovery that AML in and of itself was 18 different types of cancer. Um, and I, I don't know if that is still the case or have we found even more um, mutations that would, that would cause you to think about AML as its own, you know, a, a particular type of AML as its own disease? Yeah, we really are starting to define subtypes of AML on the basis of specific mutations that we find or other kinds of uh, flip-flops in the genetic material, maybe at the the chromosome level, which is kind of a bigger change that we can see using more basic, older tests. So we went from even a couple years ago mostly relying on uh, looking at the chromosomes to now relying a lot more on the individual point mutations. And the more that we discover mutations that are associated with AML growth or with maybe how responsive they might be to treatment or might not be, um, or how likely they might be to relapse, the more that we've sort of moved into this personalized medicine realm in AML where we do um, have many more subtypes of disease that are defined on the basis of those specific abnormalities. So this is unfortunately one of the challenges, though, too, that AML poses. It's not like chronic myeloid leukemia where overwhelmingly there's really one genetic change that causes that disease to happen and it's kind of like a cancer switch that gets flipped on and then you can target that with the various pills we have that sort of shut it down and it turns it into a very chronic disease that now we're even thinking we might sometimes be able to cure and have people off therapy um, after getting into a really good remission. With AML, uh, we have learned that there are 50 plus mutations that are sometimes associated with this disease and its prognosis. And so um, it isn't a situation where we can hope for one targeted treatment and one pill to cure people and completely change the outcomes. And yet, we do know that about half of patients with newly diagnosed AML will have a targetable mutation with an FDA-approved therapy now. So we are starting to use those targeted drugs as part of the treatment, but they're not the the sole focus and the, the sole part of the story the way that they are in a disease like CML. Mm-hmm. So let's, um, let's, let's use that to sort of step back for our listeners. 
And, you know, I heard you talk about CML. We're talking about AML. This is part of a series about leukemias broadly. Um, We may at some point, our listeners may hear the word lymphoid. Um, So can you just level set us on what is AML? What's the difference between the M and sometime the L in lymphoid? And what's the difference between the A in acute and the C in, in chronic? Yeah, these are such important questions, and it causes a lot of confusion. These are unfamiliar terms that are not intuitive at all, so it's really important to talk through these at the start of our conversation here. The the myeloid piece really just refers to a a specific line of cells that are produced by the bone marrow, which I like to think of as our blood factory. So the myeloid cells include your red blood cells, which make the blood red, and they carry oxygen and energy. So if you have low red blood cells, what we sometimes call anemia, you might feel really tired or short of breath. So those are myeloid cells. But also platelets are part of the myeloid lineage of cells. And platelets are the cells that basically stop us from just spontaneously bleeding out, or they are the the first line of defense when we cut ourselves. The platelets all kind of stick together and clump up in the, the wound until other parts of the fancier clotting system can actually form these sort of protein deposits and, and the scab that eventually forms that really more definitively prevents the bleeding and, and promotes healing. Um, platelets are the first thing that happens way before that. So if our platelets are really low, we can have significant issues with bruising and bleeding. And then also, uh, most of the white blood cells, which are, are really more part of our immune system functioning, uh, most of the white blood cells too are myeloid cells, except for one sort of subtype. And that's where the lymphoid things thing comes in and it causes a lot of confusion uh, because lymphocytes are, are part of the lymphoid cells and um, we hear about lymphoid leukemias and uh, really those are just a small proportion and a certain subtype of the white blood cells, whereas most of the other ones are in this myeloid category. I hope that isn't too confusing because it gets very detailed um, mm-hmm. the farther we go down this rabbit hole, but it's probably not worth going into too much of those nuances. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's important to know that there's you know there are these two different lines and then acute and chronic. You know, the acute is typically more urgent, right, and need to be reacted to yeah. in a in a in a more emergent kind of way um, versus the chronic situation. Yeah, so we usually think of chronic leukemias as ones that come on slowly. And they often behave as more chronic or what we might say indolent diseases, meaning um, we could see signs of them in the body, maybe through blood tests or some other impacts that they have on laboratory values or organ functioning, things like that. Uh, But a person might not actually even have symptoms if we diagnose it early. We might just see some abnormalities in their blood counts, but they might feel fine. And it might not change very quickly. So it's like a chronic illness for many patients who have chronic leukemias. Um, There certainly can be some variability, uh, but you could think of it more like a chronic health condition, like having high blood pressure or diabetes or cardiovascular disease. On the other hand, acute leukemias are ones that we usually think of as coming on relatively quickly in terms of a person feeling badly and getting sick and urgently needing some kind of treatment. So with an acute leukemia, for example, these 
cancer cells that are in your bone marrow, in your blood factory, are growing very quickly. And they crowd out the normal blood factory functioning. And so the, those cells that I mentioned earlier that are really important for preventing bleeding or the ones that are important for carrying energy and oxygen or the immune system cells end up not being made properly or not being made in high enough number. And these cancer cells sort of crowd everything out. And that's actually what leads to the, the signs and symptoms of an acute leukemia. Mm-hmm. So, so please stay on that theme and, and tell our listeners what are some of the typical symptoms that people see with AML. They're usually related to these low blood count issues. And so, for example, with low white blood cells, a person is at greater risk for infection, especially more severe bacteria bloodstream kind of infections. Um, a person might also have significant fatigue, uh, be really pale, be more short of breath, be unable to do their normal activities, like suddenly maybe um, not being able to get up a flight of stairs or get through a, their workout routine because of the, the anemia, the low red blood cells. And then we often do also see a particular kind of a rash that comes from having low platelets or even more significant bruising or sometimes more significant bleeding from the low platelet count. And then also more general symptoms can happen, like often will happen with various types of illnesses. So we might see fevers um, in in addition to the sort of general um, fatigue that I mentioned that could be from low uh, red blood cells. Um, You can have this almost flu-like constellation of symptoms, maybe not being uh, very hungry, not having much appetite, losing some weight, having fevers, sort of generally feeling poorly. So the symptoms actually sometimes can be pretty nonspecific, and it's not at all obvious um, with those things that I just mentioned to you that um, a doctor would think immediately, oh, this must be leukemia or this must be acute leukemia. So sometimes it does actually still take a little while or some trial and error before, before people get diagnosed and come to medical attention. But with acute leukemias, that still tends to be more in the order of days to a few weeks, not typically months or certainly not not years. It's not smoldering around um, behaving for years. It causes trouble much more quickly than that. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Thank you so much. We are going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to continue this really important conversation with Dr. LeBlanc. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We'll be right back with more after this break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. 
People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you by Daiichi Senkyo Incorporated and also Astellas. I am your guest host today, Linda Bohannon, and I'm happy to sit in for Kim Tibaldo, who you're, who is off um, today, your regular host. As part of our special series looking at leukemias, we are looking today at acute myeloid leukemia, or AML for short. And our guest is a leading expert in this field, Dr. Thomas LeBlanc, who is Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematologic Malignancies and Cellular Therapy at the Duke University School of Medicine, and also Director of the Cancer Patient Experience Research program in the Duke Cancer Institute. And Dr. LeBlanc, one of the things that um, 
I really appreciate about you and the work that you're doing is the true focus on the patient experience and, you know, how people are actually living with their cancer and not just what they're experiencing as a result of their treatment. And I would I would love for you to just share with our listeners your thoughts around decision making and sort of the process that you go through to help your patients understand their diagnosis and um, understanding their goals for treatment. Sure. Well, decision making is particularly difficult and complicated in AML because, as we were just talking about, it tends to come on pretty suddenly and it tends to make people relatively sick such that many of these patients come to our attention in the context of a hospital stay. And so Mm -hmm. a person might be feeling okay and then two weeks later they're in the hospital with a serious, potentially life-limiting illness. And so the shock and suddenness of that is something that we've heard from many, many patients and families is a a barrier to really meaningfully participating in the decision-making process in uh, what we would consider to be ideal medical decision-making. And and the ideal medical decision-making term that would apply here is is what's called shared decision-making. And the idea between uh, with shared decision-making is that it's basically a process whereby we we talk, of course, about the disease and the, the prognosis and the treatment and the risks and benefits, but just as importantly, who the patient is and what's important to them. What are their goals? What are their their values? And how do they want to participate in the decision-making process? Some people really want their doctor to, to make a recommendation and kind of decide for them. Um, other people really want to spend a lot of time reading and thinking and getting other opinions and, and deciding on what feels right for them after they've developed some kind of sense of mastery over the, the data, um, which is very tricky to do in a short period of time with a complicated disease like this, but, but some people do it and want to do it. And then there's also something kind of in the middle where um, you really share the, the responsibilities for decision-making between the patient and the, the doctor. But actually, all of those three different types of decision-making that I just mentioned fit under the rubric of shared decision-making because we're basically assessing uh, what patients and families want in terms of information and what their preferences are and how they want to participate in the process. And so, so how, does, how does that sort of work? You know, when you, you know, when receiving a cancer diagnosis is just so distressing in and of itself. And, you know, we all talk about how once you hear the word you have cancer, you just sort of shut down um, and really don't process anything. So what are the kind of things that you that you say to your newly diagnosed patients and what role do their caregivers have in that? And, you know, at what level do you start to bring in some of these molecular treatments and testing to try to understand what that whole picture looks like for patients? Yes, that that is really at the heart of what makes this so challenging now. And now that we have these molecular profiling techniques and we have targeted therapies available, we often need the results of the test before we can have some of the discussions or before we can make some of the decisions. But some of these tests are pretty sophisticated and take quite a while to to come back. So uh, with next generation sequencing tests, for example, we usually don't have those results for two or three weeks. So oftentimes myself and my colleagues are using other kinds of tests that get at these 
point mutations or uh, give us information about what might be targetable with an approved therapy so that we can get those results back maybe within three to five days or within a week or so to make decisions. But sometimes that means that we are sitting around kind of watching and waiting a little bit. And that can even be in a person who's sick enough to be in the hospital. And it can be very frustrating for patients and families to to feel like we're sort of sitting around watching paint dry or watching grass grow. And why aren't we mm-hmm. starting to treat this disease? Um, so it's incredibly important to recognize that um, we've learned it's okay to wait a little bit, at least. And we have techniques where we can support the patient through that period of time pretty safely so that we can get all of the information back to make the best possible decision and to know what's available in our armamentarium. Do we have any of these targeted therapies available for you as a person? Or does your leukemia not have any of those targetable mutations and we have to focus on other sorts of um, more traditional treatments or even some of the newer treatments that aren't specifically targeted towards a mutation. So it is, it's really incredibly difficult and, and complex. And on top of the waiting issues, um, as I mentioned, this idea of um, feeling distressed or overwhelmed, like you said, the shock and suddenness of a cancer diagnosis sometimes means that um, a patient or, or their family may not feel like they they can even take it all in and, and absorb it. And uh, sometimes we see folks be more deferential to their doctors about the treatment. And that's okay if that's how they want to make decisions and, and if that's all they're able to do in the moment. But it does require that we really work hard to ask the right kinds of questions to get to know them and to, to get to know what's important to them um, so that we can make a recommendation about treatment that is true to who they are and, and what their, their values are. So, for example, I, this is, I know, still a little bit um, kind of obtuse. Um, the main treatment pathways that we often think about going down in this disease are pretty different, where one generally is really high-dose therapy, spending a month in the hospital, um, a chance at cure in some patients, but also a risk of dying from the treatment because it's so intensive, whereas some of the other pathways may be lower intensity and we may be able to do them in the clinic, but they might also have a lower chance of getting that person into a remission or they may not really have a meaningful chance at cure and also probably are less risky. So we can get more into the details as we talk more about these new treatments too, but just to give you that that basic flavor of how it's much more high stakes and much more complicated and reasonable people very much can disagree on what the right path is for them. So some people just don't want to be in the hospital. Other mm-hmm. people just really don't want to take on that chance that they could have a shorter life because of an intensive treatment. And then others are really very focused on having the chance at cure and the opportunity to maybe be alive in five or, or 10 years. And we might steer them down more aggressive but risky path if we know that that's the more important thing to them that's driving their decision. So we really have to get to know each patient and family very individually. And it's pretty tricky to do this when something so sudden and life-threatening is happening to a person and their family. 
Mm-hmm. So I just want to sort of ground people in things that they may be familiar. You know, I always try to, to point out, you know, what is sort of our old way of thinking about cancer and what is sort of our new way of thinking about cancer. And just to anchor our listeners in the diagnosis phase, patients who have AML will still have to go through a bone marrow biopsy to make a definitive diagnosis. And it's from that biopsy and other tests that you're able to learn about the personalized medicine potential, correct? Absolutely. And this is often part of what we are waiting around for. So if a person gets admitted to the hospital and they have a high white blood cell count and they're anemic and we think it might be acute myeloid leukemia, we send off some fancy tests sometimes even from the blood, but we have to do a bone marrow biopsy. And it usually takes about two, three days to have even the preliminary results back from that where we can say, yes, this is actually AML. We don't have the fancy molecular tests back, these these sort of biomarkers and targetable things, but we at least know what the disease is and we can start talking about those basics. And then the other thing I just want to level set everyone on is around the language used for we'll call them solid tumors, so breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, and the language that's used in liquid tumors like leukemias around stage. So, you know, people may have heard, oh, I've got stage two breast cancer, um, for example, and that's not necessarily the language that you use for leukemia. You're absolutely right. It's not. And this can cause confusion and actually sometimes frustration. So uh, it seems like most people know that stage is really important in cancer. And so everybody wants to know, well, what, what stage is it or what, what's my stage? Because usually with a solid organ tumor, the stage relates pretty closely to whether or not it's curable or uh, whether or not we might do or recommend surgery, uh, what are the chances that a treatment will make the cancer go away permanently or temporarily, how treatable will this be, et cetera. And with AML, there aren't actually stages because it's a cancer of the blood. And so by definition, the blood is kind of throughout the body. It doesn't necessarily mean anything worse that these blood cells are circulating in the blood for example. That's just kind of what they do. And so we can't say, oh, if it's only limited to a certain organ, it's better. And if it's widespread, it's worse. That just doesn't apply to a disease like this. Instead, we do what we call risk stratification. And the idea is that we are prognosticating, which is just a fancy medical term for trying to get a prediction of um, what the likely outcome is. And in other words, is this a a really high-risk AML where no matter what we do, it's very likely to come back and a person mm-hmm. might be more likely to even die of, of that disease in the next couple of years? Or is it a really what we call favorable risk AML where we wouldn't be talking about really risky things like stem cell transplant because with certain treatment, we might have a more than... chance of curing a person, let's say. And so we would kind of focus on that curative intent, chemotherapy sort of based treatment. And uh, many people will do well with that and not need something more, more aggressive. And then there are a lot that are in the middle, what we call intermediate risk AML, where uh, there might be some features of the higher or the lower risk ones, but not so extremely that we would put, um, put that person into one of those more 
um, buckets at, at the outliers there. So there are kind of three main categories now that you will see in the the guideline panel recommendations about AML. This uh, poor high risk or, or poor risk disease, intermediate risk, and favorable risk disease. And it's actually mostly now the fancy biomarker testing or the, the next-gen sequencing, the molecular testing that helps inform which category a person uh, a person's disease might put them into. Okay, great. Well, thank you. That was really helpful and really sets us up well for the next segment, which is going to be talking about some specifics around treatment and, and some more questions that patients may have. We have got to take a quick commercial break, and please don't go back because there's a lot to, to tell you in the next segment. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. 
For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Linda Bohannon, sitting in for your regular host, Kim Tibaldo. And today's episode is brought to you by Daiichi Senkyo and Estellas. And we are really lucky to be joined today by Dr. Thomas LeBlanc for an in-depth look at acute myeloid leukemia, which is AML for short, and a part of our special series where we are looking at leukemias. And I'm just going to put a little plug in for our website, which is cancersupportcommunity.org. Um, if you have any any additional questions, because I know we're giving you a lot of really detailed information, which is incredibly important for you to know as you're engaged in shared decision making that Dr. LeBlanc talked about earlier. So please feel free to visit there and um, um, we'll continue on with this this conversation as well and give you a little bit more information. And Dr. LeBlanc, we talked in the last segment about you know, diagnosis, some of the concepts around staging, and then we got into a little bit about um, about treatment. And I would love for you to just go a little bit deeper into the current treatments available. And, you know, I just go back and, you know, I've talked about, you know, the past and, you know, treatment for AML was typically high-dose chemotherapy and a bone marrow transplant. And, um, you know, so there's there's still this treatment and then you know possibly more treatment later what what does that all look like now and I and I realize that it's very individual depending on the the personalized nature of it but just generally kind of walk us through treatment for AML yes it is increasingly complicated and so I find that it's helpful to think about the treatments in a few major buckets so there are the more high-intensity induction kinds of treatments where usually we are giving those in the hospital and they are associated with some more risk and complications but often are more effective than low-dose or low-intensity treatments. Um, the the low-intensity kind of treatments are usually a low-dose chemotherapy plus or minus something else maybe. Um, and the something else is where things have gotten much more complicated recently around targeted therapies. And then we also have just targeted therapies that might be used by themselves. So some of these are pills. Uh, there are IV versions. Sometimes they're given along with chemotherapies. Um, some can be given with a high-dose chemotherapy. Some can be given with a low-dose one. So you can see that even in terms of those buckets that I just laid out, there's actually a lot of overlap now that makes it pretty confusing to talk about. But just sort of briefly, if we go back to the 
intensive induction, high-dose therapy kind of a of a process. Um, that's a treatment where a patient would come into the hospital typically, and they would get an IV chemotherapy, and it's usually a couple different chemotherapies given together. Um, it can be for several days. Sometimes they are continuous infusions even. Um, sometimes they're not continuous, but they're given on multiple days. And typically what happens is the person will be in the hospital for actually about a month where the chemotherapy mostly wipes out their blood factories production of normal blood cells, normal platelets, and normal white blood cells. And in doing so, hopefully it also gets rid of most of the leukemia cells, the cancer cells that are in their bone marrow or their, their blood factory. And somewhere in the range of about three weeks into that treatment, the bone marrow, bone marrow kind of reboots and starts producing the normal cells again as it's recovering from the chemotherapy. And the idea is that the normal blood cell production kicks back in, but most of the leukemia cells hopefully are gone at that point. And we would then let the person go home somewhere around the 30th day or so from the start of that treatment, and we would look at their bone marrow again with a bone marrow biopsy and hopefully find that they are in remission. Um, and this is a really important topic in AML, and it's confusing to, to patients and families, but basically remission is not the same as cure. It doesn't mean the cancer is completely gone, but it can be a step towards cure. And it basically means when we look under the microscope at the bone marrow, there are only a small number of leukemia cells left, or there are so few left that we can't see them visually, but we might still be able to detect them by really sensitive, fancier tests that we might do. Like, for example, we do this thing called flow cytometry that counts the individual cells in ways that you couldn't see it under the microscope. So basically, the high-dose therapy is um, what gives you usually the highest chance at getting into a remission, but it comes at the cost of maybe five or ten in a hundred people who receive this treatment um, even dying from a, a complication, really severe bloodstream infection, having to go to the ICU, etc. So it's not a, a, a trivial decision to make about whether or not a person might want to undergo that kind of treatment, but historically it has been the most effective kind of therapy for AML. We tend to reserve it for people who are particularly fit and functional with normal organs, uh, you know, not on oxygen or not on dialysis, no significant liver dysfunction, um, because we know that a person who might be older or more frail or whose organs don't work very well is even more likely to suffer complications uh, from that really aggressive treatment. So we're very careful about talking about the risks and benefits, and then we usually will only recommend this treatment to somebody who is um, on the healthier side, or if it's somebody who's in their, their 70s or even 80s, it's less typical that we would give this kind of treatment, and we would only um, give it to people in those age ranges who are um, more fit and without lots of uh, medical problems and, and complications. Okay. And the low-dose therapies, um, those usually are given more so in the clinic. If it's a low-dose chemotherapy, it might be five days in a row, a shot under the skin in the belly, or maybe an IV treatment. Sometimes they're seven days in a row and you come in on the weekend. Um, there, there are a few different recipes and ways to do this. 
Um, and there are some newly approved therapies that we can add to the low-dose chemotherapy that seem to pretty significantly improve the chances at getting a remission from that treatment as well. Um, and the caveat, though, is that um, it takes longer for any of these low-dose, low-intensity treatments to work. So we wouldn't expect a remission after a month. Um, sometimes it does happen with the newer ones, but it might be two or three or four months. And uh, a person would just basically keep coming back and forth to the clinic, have very frequent monitoring of their blood counts, maybe a couple times a week. And they might require a lot of transfusion support because of their leukemia crowding out the bone marrow and also these treatments suppressing the normal bone marrow function. And so it's still a lot to go through. Um, but it's a different level of intensity than the high-intensity treatments and uh, usually isn't something that requires people to be in the hospital. I know even that is a lot of information, so I'm going to pause mm -hmm. for a moment and not take up all of our time talking <laughs> about the minutiae, um, but hopefully well, that's helpful. I think it's really helpful, <clears throat> and to put it in um, a bit of a plain language version, the, which I really appreciated when we were going through the experience with my dad, the way that his doctor explained it was that um, you would envision your bone marrow as a garden, and the cancer cells would be weeds in the garden, and you the two choices were you could either you know, come through the garden with a high-powered lawnmower, or you could come through the garden and just slowly start to weed the you know take the weeds out by hand you know or by the little clippers or the you know the you know in a, in a more delicate way and for him that visual seemed to be really helpful and I don't know if you agree with that or not yeah that's a really great way to describe it the high intensity chemotherapy might be sort of like completely tilling up the entire thing with the machine and getting rid of all the the weeds um, but you also get rid of any healthy plants that might be there too and that's that's kind of part of why you have to start over again and it's more more risky so in general and we've got about two minutes until we go to a commercial break because and, and I'd like to sort of talk about what um, what what does the patient experience look like you know, as people are going through, you know, either of these options. And then when we come back from commercial break, I really want to talk to you about palliative care and, you know, how, how we integrate um, the two of those. So um, let's, you know what, let's, let's go to our commercial break now, and then we will come back and end the show talking about symptoms, side effects, and palliative medicine. Does that sound okay to you? That sounds great. Great. So you listeners, please don't go away. Um, we will be right back after this commercial break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com 
or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is brought to you in part by Daiichi Senkyo and Estellas. This is Linda Bohannon. I'm sitting in today for Kim Tebaldo, and we've had such a very thoughtful conversation with Dr. Tom LeBlanc on the issue of um, AML. And I would like to do two things, Dr. LeBlanc. Um, if we could just back up. So we've talked about sort of the um, intense and less intense type therapies. Because there are so many molecular targets, so before we really get to you know side effects and palliative care, can you just sort of go over what questions or what targets, what they are, and what patients should be asking um, asking about relative to that? 
Sure. So at this point, there are FDA-approved therapies for FLT3 mutations. That's FLT and the number three. So we just say FLT because it's easier. Um, and then also IDH1 and IDH2 mutations. And then a targeted therapy against something called CD33, which is sort of a flag on the outside of the the leukemia cells. So it's really important that anybody diagnosed with AML undergoes testing for FLT3 and for IDH1 and 2 mutations as well as the CD33 expression. Um, these are all different kinds of tests, but they need to be explicitly ordered. You don't just get this information from a traditional bone marrow aspiration and biopsy, and so it's really important that the ordering hematologist, oncologist is aware of these mutations and the fact that they really can impact a person's treatment options, and they also can impact prognosis. So, for example, if a person has the FLT3 mutation, that usually makes it a higher-risk leukemia where we might be more strongly recommending something like a stem cell transplant once we get the person into remission because we know there's such a high chance that that disease will come back that we should be aggressive up front, and that gives a person their best chance at a potential cure. So, these are mutations that are, are pretty common too. About 30% of patients with AML will have a FLT3 mutation, and then another 20% or so will have an IDH1 or 2 mutation. And there's a little bit of overlap, but not too much. So I usually say about half of AML patients probably have a targetable mutation now um, with an FDA-approved therapy. And then there's also the, the CD33 one that I uh, mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you something. So should 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 patients ask it, you know, if they have been tested in the be- in the very beginning, should they also ask if there's a if, if they have relapsed or if their cancers come back, should they be retested? What does that look like? Yeah, this is such an important question and issue. So there is something called clonal evolution that happens with cancer and particularly with AML. This has been proven very elegantly with scientific experiments. At the time of diagnosis, a person might or might not have some of these mutations. And if we give them treatment, we basically apply some selective pressure to those cancer cells. And there are kind of subgroups of them. So it's not just one disease. There's there's maybe a predominant one and then maybe a couple of what we call subclones. And if you knock down maybe the weakest cancer cells and you're just left with some of the, the um, minor clones left, then they might repopulate the bone marrow and cause the disease to recur with a completely different molecular profile than what you picked up at the beginning when those were just a minority of the cancer cells, and now they're the majority. So this idea of clonal evolution means we absolutely must test for mutations at diagnosis and at each time of a suspected relapse or a new line of treatment because you could have a new targetable mutation and have a new treatment option available for a patient with a relapse disease, but you also unfortunately can have a target that disappears when a person's disease comes back if the relapse is driven by something, uh, by one of those clones that didn't happen to have the targetable abnormality. So it's really important to test and to retest. Yeah, and if, if, if one of those targets disappears, you don't want to give them a treatment that you know wouldn't work and expose them to side effects. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Great. Okay, so speaking of side effects, let's talk about palliative care. And, um, you know, there's been this misperception that palliative care means end-of-life care or hospice care. And I'll tell you, 
palliative care and the palliative care specialist made all the difference in my dad's experience with his AML. So I would love for you to, you know, talk to um, our listeners a little bit about what it, what it is, why did you decide to go into it, you know, what's the impact to the patient experience of, you know, receiving palliative care? Yes, this is such an important topic. So palliative care is really a subspecialty now of medicine and, and of healthcare. So just like you could go and see a specialist in the heart, a cardiologist or an infection specialist, you can see a palliative care specialist. And what they really specialize in is whole person care that is focused on living well and feeling well when you have a serious illness. So it doesn't actually even need to be a life-limiting illness. It's just something serious. And its emphasis is on symptom management, quality of life, addressing distress, um, helping provide support, coping, um, helping to deal with family and caregivers. So it's really an extra layer of support that can be added to standard cancer care. And there are many studies now showing that early integration of palliative care into really high-quality cancer care improves symptom burden, quality of life, maybe even actually helps uh, patients with solid tumors live longer. And we're starting to learn that patients with blood cancers like leukemias also look like they can derive really significant benefits from adding palliative care to the standard cancer care. So it's really important for patients and families to know about this and to recognize that they can ask to see a palliative care specialist even uh, right around the time of diagnosis and that that doesn't mean that they would be foregoing treatment. It doesn't mean that we're talking about something at the end of life like hospice care. You know, that's a very specific type of palliative care that's focused more on the end of life and hospice really is more sort of about an insurance benefit that pays for certain kinds of care at the end of life. But mostly what we mean today when we talk about palliative care is this extra layer of support and early upstream integration to help a person feel better when they're dealing with something difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think to get really granular, we're talking about pain management. You had mentioned, um, you know, maybe there was fatigue, helping them manage fatigue. It might be nutrition, um, and helping them with dietary habits. I know <clears throat> with my dad, it was um, how to manage through some of the side effects of his antibiotics. And anything, anything else you would add to that? Yeah, it's symptom management in general. So pain is one of the more common symptoms that people with cancer face. It's maybe a bit less common with leukemias than with some solid tumors, but we certainly see bone pain issues, and they can be very crippling for people. So aggressive pain management is very much in the wheelhouse of palliative care specialists, but sometimes it might be other things like nausea. So some of these new targeted therapies, um, we tend to think because they're a pill, they're, they're not going to be difficult to tolerate. And I'll tell you that I have met some patients who have had so much difficulty with symptoms and side effects from pills more so than what I might expect to see with an IV chemotherapy because every person is different. Their experience is different. Palliative care specialists can be really great at aggressively managing those symptoms from the disease or the treatment that might be bothering a person. Other ones that are pretty common relate to the bowel. So some people get bad diarrhea or constipation from some of these new targeted treatments. Uh, Fatigue, as you mentioned, is one of them. Sometimes it's appetite-related issues. It could even be something like 
insomnia, trouble sleeping from supportive care medicines that we might give. So we give people steroids to prevent nausea and vomiting when they get chemotherapy, and then the steroids make it difficult for people to sleep sometimes or cause uh, nervousness and, and anxiety. And a palliative care specialist can help with the management of those symptoms and side effects. Mm-hmm. Great. So the, the message to our listeners is don't be afraid to ask for palliative care as a part of your overall regimen. Absolutely. And, and I would say, though, that sometimes when you ask, you will get a perplexed look if you're seeing mm-hmm. a clinician who, who isn't up to speed on what palliative care means in the 21st century. This, this idea that it isn't a word for death and dying or for hospice, that now really it's a, it's a word for sophisticated, specialized uh, medical care about feeling well when you have serious illness. Um, mm-hmm. So we certainly have a lot of education that we need to do to get everybody up to speed on it. Um, but it's important to ask. Sure. We have about 30 seconds left. I'm going to see if you have a final word that you would like to leave um, our listeners with. Well, I would just say that it it is a really exciting time in the uh, science of AML, and knowing that there are personalized treatments now that can be provided to patients and families who are dealing with this disease is just such a transformational opportunity for us being able to provide better care and improve outcomes. So the challenge now is that we have to make sure that the testing is being done and that patients know what to ask for if their doctors aren't as familiar and aren't sending those tests. So I would just say um, to be really sort of aggressive about reading and making sure that the testing has been done and, and even asking for another opinion to make sure that you are on the right track in this era where there are so many new treatments and things are changing so quickly, it's almost impossible for anybody to keep up. Great. Thank you for that. And I will just also mention that our website is www.cancersupportcommunity.org. On the website, you will see our digital community called My Lifeline. And one of the new additions to My Lifeline is a discussion board on AML. So if you haven't joined the My Lifeline community or if you're on the My Lifeline community and you have not joined the discussion board, please join the discussion board where you can speak to other patients and family members about your experience and their experience with AML. Dr. LeBlanc, thank you so much for joining us today. You are quite welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Linda. And to our listeners, thank you for spending your hour with us, and we really appreciate you, you, you being here and hope that you will visit our website and also call us at 1-888-793-9355 if there's anything we can do for you. Today, I'm going to dedicate this show to my dad, the first patient that I ever had with AML um, years and years ago when I started my nursing career. Her name was Paula. And I'm going to dedicate this show to all of those patients who have been fortunate enough to be seen by Dr. LeBlanc. Until the next time, be well, do well, and live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Support Community.org.